we have these event cards in the back, and if you don't have, uh, if you have any, any ideas or any uh, desire to plug into something we're doing, you'll find that on the event card in the back. And so nothing specific to bring up for you today, just know we've got those, okay? So turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we've got ushers that are bringing Bibles down. Don't feel weird about this. We do it every week. We want you to follow along and be able to turn through as we go through this, helping all of us be discipled in how do we get through Scripture together. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of the guys will, will bring it out to you. Now, we acknowledge, and I'm going to keep bringing this up because I think it's that important for the grand narrative of the text, but in chapter 8, we hit a turn in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, where we maybe saw for the first eight chapters, there was this, this drive for us to know who Jesus was, right? To acknowledge Jesus was God. And then in eight, we get this switch where now God comes, the Father comes from heaven, looks upon Jesus, says, this is my son, Jesus, listen to him. And so for the rest of the gospel of Mark, we get this heavy push into discipleship into what does it now mean, not just to know who Jesus is, but to actually follow him, right? To, to listen to his teaching, then to take it into your being and then live it out, to follow Jesus in all of life. That is now the main driving force of the gospel of Mark, okay? So we saw two weeks ago, because last week we did Nate's farewell service, uh, even though he's still here today, which is strange, um, but two weeks ago we did, uh, who is the greatest, was the main question. In the midst of this discipleship context, the question of who is the greatest, landing on that if, if we answer someone not Jesus, then it's going to make discipleship near impossible, and oftentimes we do that. We will answer with someone else, some other idol, or oftentimes we'll even answer with ourselves. I'm the greatest, and so since I'm the greatest, I won't need to follow him. I'll follow my own thoughts, my own wisdom, my own ways, my own pursuits, my own desires. And this is not discipleship. And so that carries on in today because that question of who is the greatest is something that is applicable to the context of today. As Jesus continues to mine, do you really want to follow me? Like, like Christian, do you, do you really want to follow? Do you really want to be part of my kingdom and my team? Because there's going to be some tough things. So he's going to address a couple cultural idols, I think. The first one today is marriage and divorce. And then next week we're going to get into some wealth and some finance and some status, some power issues and stuff like that. But today it's marriage and divorce. Divorce is such an interesting topic for me. I grew up in Slidell, Louisiana, which is a small town just outside New Orleans. And I remember growing up, I had one divorced friend in the entire city. Like, I, it just did not happen in the South. You didn't get divorced. You could, you could do a lot of other stuff, but you just didn't get divorced. But then I moved to California, and I'm living in, in San Diego, kind of that area, and I kid you not, it was probably closer to 50 to 60% of my friends had divorced families. And I thought to myself, even at this age, and I wasn't a Christian when we moved, I began to think, well, what is the difference? Like, what, why, why in the South is, is there this, this really anti-divorce type of thing, and then in, in the West, in, 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 uh, in San Diego, there's, it's much more prevalent. And immediately, even at that age, I began to acknowledge, I said, well, there's, there's something, there must be something with the religion thing. There must be something in there with, with religion. Now, I want to be very careful here on the front end to say the answer is not religion. It's not better in the South because of they are more religious, legalistic, they stick to the law, and they don't want to be found out. It's not that, and we're going to mine really the issues of discipleship that I think apply to marriage and divorce. Now, 
many of us have heard the statistic that across America, that every, that, uh, what is it, one in two, 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Okay, we've heard that stat. That is actually inaccurate, okay? And I've, I think I've even said it before, but that number is a bit exaggerated, okay? That real number is closer to 35%. In 2014, a, a woman, along with a set of colleagues, did an eight-year study taking all past information, looking across all sorts of demographics, and did the most, uh, the most intense study on on marriage and divorce and came out with this number, about 35%. So still not great. We don't celebrate that a little bit less marriages and divorce, but still about one in three. The second statistic that we often hear is that divorce is just as bad in the church and amongst Christianity as it is in the world. This is also not accurate. Although often it preaches well because it makes us feel bad and say we need to step up, which we do, It's not actually all that accurate. In fact, when she began to look at demographics across churches and into religion and found out, man, if you actually go to church, are involved in church activity, consider yourself a born-again Christian, live your life as a disciple of Christ, that number actually drops down to about 10 or 11%. See, there's a 24 to 25% difference between a disciple of Jesus and the watching world, which makes this issue a discipleship issue. And oftentimes we separate marriage as something else. It's it's something for us. It's really not underneath the lordship of Jesus. But the reality is everything that shows us is that, man, if you walk with Jesus, if Jesus is your savior, if he is your Lord, if you choose to follow him in all of life, there is a much greater chance that your marriage will succeed. It's a discipleship issue. And so again, within the context of what Jesus is addressing, this makes a ton of sense, all right? So here we go, starting in verse one. And it was fun. We just got back from a, a Paul Tripp marriage conference. If you're not familiar with him, he's wrote a lot of great stuff on, on marriage. And I was, I was legitimately tempted to put up a video this morning and walk away. Like, it's, it's that good. And so for, as far as resources on the front end here, if you're looking for him, Paul David Tripp, he's amazing. He's got some great stuff. But here we go. Verse 1. It says, He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So let's set the scene. This is nothing new. The Pharisees have been trying to get at Jesus for quite some time now. Every time coming in with a new question, a new test, this is not like a pop quiz, this is a test in which they seek to destroy him. There is negative, false motive behind every test that is given by the Pharisees. And so they show up, they say, man, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew 19 goes a step further. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Contextually, the Pharisees are probably trying to do something similar to what happened to John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist had his head cut off because he called out Herod Antipas for marrying his brother's wife. So what's probably happening here is the Pharisees getting frustrated, trying to tear down Jesus, say, all right, I got an idea. We're going to go talk to him about divorce. Hopefully what he says will upset Herod, and then Herod will solve this problem for us. Maybe we can get Jesus' head cut off. This is how intense the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees has gotten. That they're now already beginning to say, how do we kill this guy? Not how do we silence him, not how do we, say, how do we kill this guy? Because his message is just too crazy for us, too different, too revolutionary. Okay. 
That's their hope. That's the context that then we get Jesus' interaction with them. He says this in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So historical context. Deuteronomy 24, we go Old Testament, and there are many more passages throughout the Old Testament talking about divorce, but this is the main one. Deuteronomy 24 says that, listen up, Jew, if you want to get a divorce, you need to give them a, a certificate of divorce. And in the midst of that, the only proof could be indecency. Now, this word indecency seems somewhat fluid. In fact, it it really became very fluid around the time of Christ. About 100 BC on into Jesus' ministry, there were two main schools of thought. One uh, by a a sage named Shammai and his house. Another one by uh, the sage Hillel and his house. And Shammai was very strict and religious and said, you know what? The only way you can get a divorce is by adultery. Indecency means adultery. That's what Deuteronomy 24 means. But the other house... Hillel thought it meant anything that they desired. They, they thought, listen, you can divorce your wife or whatever. So literally, you would have a divorce. A husband would come home. There would be a burnt dish for dinner, and that would be grounds for divorce. Okay, Both directions, how many people would have checked out? <laughs> Toilet seat, up or down, that probably would have counted, right? Some of the women are like, yeah, no, I've thought about it. I've thought about it. Yeah, towel on the floor, thought about it, yeah. What's funny is we, we, we kind of chuckle, like, oh, we would, come on. You know what we've done? We've packaged toilet seat up, towel on the floor with irreconcilable differences. What we've packaged to make it more palatable is the fact that a whole bunch of little things are now irreconcilable. We can't seem to work this out that we're selfish people that care about us more than the other irreconcilable differences. And so we, we laugh, like, oh, come on, Hillel. And you guys were all thinking that this morning. Every time you say, come on, Hillel. What were you thinking? No, every day, if you're here and you're married, or if you're headed that direction, or if you're single and you aspire to it, believe me, your heart is wretched, and you will long for everything you want. Everything you want will win out. Unless... You daily pursue Jesus. Unless you lean on his grace, unless he becomes center and forefront of everything you say, do, think, believe, feel, every single aspect. It's a discipleship issue. All your relationships, but marriage, particular, right. Excuse me. Excuse me. And so he says this, getting into verse five. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So right right here on the start of this, notice what he does. See, as they address this question, he doesn't take upon wisdom of the day to answer. What he does is he goes all the way back to creation. See, he roots his answer in the original intention and created order of things and says, listen, let's, let's look to the past. You want to know, is it okay? Let's, let's look back. This is what God did in the beginning, and that needs to root our entire understanding of marriage. He says, you want to know why I even allow divorce? It's because of your hard heart. 
It's because of your sin. It's because of your brokenness. It's because you kept badgering. It's because I can see inside of you and you are wicked and destructive. And so I handed you over to your own sin. I handed you over. I removed the grace that kept you from doing something stupid because you wanted to do something stupid. It's because of our hard hearts that he even says divorce is okay, allowed, permitted. It is never, ever the top decision. It is never, ever what God wants. We're going to see God hates divorce. It says in Malachi, God loves marriage. And so what we need to do in order to understand why he hates divorce so much is get a real good exposition of marriage. And I think we get it here in this. But we think through this idea of God handing us over. And any parent can probably understand this at least to a certain degree where you say, all right, kid, you're going to keep pushing me. Then go ahead and do it and see what happens. So the other day, Finley is trying, he's a little kid, he's trying to reach his finger into the electric socket, right? Any parents ever had a kid do that, right? And they're just like, that looks interesting. And so what did I do? I handed him a, le- a metal fork, right? No, I didn't. Some of you. No, but you see this, I don't know why. Constantly, my son, and constantly, if you're a parent, you've seen this. Where God's just like, I'm going to keep doing this thing right now. One of Finley's favorite things to do is he's in his crib and he knows he's got this little bear that he cannot fall asleep without. Okay, we call it, uh, we named him Mr. Bear. And, because uh, we're creative. And anytime he wants us, it's like ringing a bell, he throws his bear over the side of the crib, right? Then he'll look up at the camera that he knows is in the room and be like, you coming? The bear? And we go and get it, right? Because he's adorable. We go and we get this bear and we pick it up and we give it to him. And eventually we learn this. Like, he is a schemer. And he might be Satan. And you're just like, listen, kid, like, what are you doing? So eventually, he threw his bear over and I said, I'm not getting it. You're going to have to be without Mr. Bear. And then he began to cry and weep and be really sad that he didn't have us or Mr. Bear. And you're thinking, I'm a terrible parent. But this has worked, okay? He has realized that if he throws his bear over enough times, daddy will not come get it and he will not be able to have Mr. Bear. God's doing a similar thing with this. He's saying, listen, I'm going to hand you over. You want this? You want divorce? You want brokenness? You want to pursue your own thing? You want to be selfish? You want to be the center of the world? You want to answer who is the greatest by answering me? Then fine. Here you go. Get divorced. And then look at the trail of brokenness, pain, and tears that is left behind. Okay. It is never God's number one desire. Okay. He, he, he breaks over it, guys. Okay. And so let's look at marriage and why it's such a big deal. Okay. Um, the first one. It was invented in the beginning of creation. So this was initial design. So when God was thinking through the creation of the world, before the fall, before any of this, he's, he's doling out stuff, and then he says, you know what? Yeah, marriage can be part of this. Why? Because he says that it's not good for man to be alone. Okay? And some of the wives are like, yeah, that's true. Okay? Whenever my wife leaves, it just gets awkward at my house. Okay? I am stuck. I'm a ramen, Velveeta uh, shells and cheese. I would just watch a whole lot. Of, like Verity went to South Africa for two weeks. I watched like two seasons of The Voice and, uh, and two seasons of Biggest Loser, which is ironic 
right? Um, mo- I meant because of the loser part. If anybody's thinking the weight part, you're a jerk. Um, as I said, I was like, man, that's something I dig on. It got me. Um, and so when left to our own devices, uh, let's just say we don't make the best decisions, okay? Josh, I know, for example, when Andy is not there, Josh plays literally 24-7 FIFA it's, and eats Domino Za. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious what happens to a man when, when, when the wife goes. It's just awkward. I don't know why it happens other than God decided in the beginning, yeah, you know what, Adam, it's not working for you, bud. I made you, but you're walking around the garden and you just seem lost. Right? There's a steak and you're eating grass. Like, it's just... And so he creates woman. Because it says, Adam, hey, you got your choice. Right? All the animals had been made up to this point. You have Adam and then you have a bunch of animals whom he has just named. And he says, you get, you get a pick. Pick which one you want. And he looks across the entire landscape. And he's like, well, you know, the giraffe, too tall. Right? <laughs> porcupine, too spiky, cat, probably a demon, dog, probably a better best friend, right? On and on and on, nothing works out. So God, hear me, hear me on this. God looks down at Adam in the midst of perfection. There was nothing wrong with, it was perfect, beautiful, without blemish. He looks down and says, you know what, there needs to be this little tweak, and what it is is that man should not be left alone, and so he creates woman for this purpose. He's like, listen up, and there's something, it's, it's almost there, and the only transition we get in all of the days and all of the creation is when finally woman is made, and it becomes very good. It becomes very, not just good, it becomes very good when finally woman is brought before man, when Eve is brought before Adam. And so we already see in the beginning of time, God in all of his wisdom and splendor says, this will be something that will mark my entire creation. It is a big, big deal. Next one. We are finding ourselves in marriage in the most important relationship on earth. Okay. It says that you will leave your father and mother and you will cling to your wife. You will leave your father and mother. You will cling to your husband. You will go and you will cling to them. You will hold fast to them. You will walk with them. That is both in uh, trial. You persevere in trial and then you celebrate in joy. It is the most important relationship on earth. It used to be, right? He's, he's making it. It used to be uh, father and mother, right? They raised you up. They cared for you, they fed you, they sustained you, and then the next jump for you is say, man, my spouse is the most important relationship on earth. God supersedes it, but we're gonna call him not on earth, right? But on earth, this side of heaven, the most important relationship you will ever have is with your spouse. Marriage is a tremendous calling. Now he talks about this idea of two becoming one, and this is a supernatural thing. This isn't like uh, two people dancing that all of a sudden dance closer and they're like one unit. It's, it's not that. It's literally a supernatural. The word that is being used here was denotes and was used throughout scripture to talk about two separate things, literally and in every possible way becoming one thing like chemically bonded, two becoming one flesh, two flesh, one flesh, bring brought together. God does something absolutely supernatural in marriage. 
That's why it's such a problem when it is sought to be broken up. Because God has brought this together and done something more than just, it's not just a moment, it is an actual change in your identity. You go from one, or from two to one. This is severe. This is a big deal. Okay. Nothing you do will not affect your spouse. And it's, listen, it's because of all of this and one more thing that we'll get to in just a little bit that God hates divorce and God loves marriage. Okay. So let's keep going. Verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Malachi 2.16, for I hate hate divorce, says the Lord God. So if we look at marriage in bullets, let's look at now divorce in bullets. Divorce rejects God's original design. Okay, we're always talking about, right, especially in America, that there's this attack on the institution of marriage, and yet divorce is so prevalent, and we don't seek to legislate that all that much. It literally is destroying marriage. It takes marriage and causes a rift and sends two things that used to be one and sends them opposite directions. It is a rejection of God's original intention and design for the world. Not okay. The next thing is other earthly relationships become more important in the midst of divorce. So no longer does, uh, does your spouse remain the most important thing for you, the thing that you would give and sacrifice and die for and consider in all things. Instead, something else or someone else has become that. And so your affections begin to go a different direction instead of focused on your spouse. So God, again, in the beginning, Jesus saying, listen, it's supposed to be the most important relationship, and we divert and say it's either going to be someone else or what often happens, it's going to be me. And so we do some premarital counseling and stuff like that. We'll do some marital counseling, and oftentimes one of the things we start realizing is when there's brokenness and things seeping in, it's because all of a sudden, one, if not both of the parties decided the other person isn't more important, I'm more important. It's about me. Paul Tripp at this conference, I will quote him one time today. He said this, and it is very prevalent in Verity, and I spoke about it on the drive home yesterday. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. Okay? The biggest problem in your marriage is you every time. Your sin, your brokenness, your selfishness, your self-righteousness, your, your, your. It's not the other person. The blame game doesn't help. What has happened is we stop exalting this person as to be the greatest relationship this side of heaven and instead we supplant with ourselves or someone else and it all goes bad. God hates that. We're breaking down again what he created in the beginning with Adam and Eve. The next one is instead of clinging to your spouse, leaving your father and mother and clinging to your spouse, instead you leave your spouse and you go probably back and cling to your father and mother. Stuff's broken, I don't know what to do. Help, you go to other people, you cling to new idols, things that are never the right answer. The next one is then, in divorce we break that supernatural oneness and bond that God has formed. 
We, we literally, we come in and, and a, like a supernatural, miraculous work that God formed and made and brought together, we destroy because of our own selfishness, because of our sin. Okay? This is not okay. This is why God hates it. See, we understand God loves marriage so much, this is why he hates divorce so much. Now, in the midst of all of this, let me be very clear also, the text is telling us there are grounds for a biblical divorce. But I want to be very upfront and say it is never the number one consideration. Okay? Reconciliation, redemption should be the pursuit when possible. But there is biblical grounds for divorce, and there's two of them we find in Scripture. The first one is adultery. We see it right here. We see it in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Corinthians. Okay? Adultery is okay. God will allow it. He say, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then yeah, you can, you can get a divorce. So that's one. The next one is desertion by an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, okay, so if, if you are married to an unbelieving spouse and they depart from you and seek not reconciliation with you, they want nothing to do with you, they just go about their own way, then the, the Bible says, okay, that's the other one. That's the other one. You, divorce, okay, you can do that. And divorce is okay. Otherwise, you can't do it. That's the explicit nature of what Scripture talks about. Now, a lot of you are thinking, well, what about this? And you're having all of these different things that are maybe popping in your head. Well, what about abuse? What about on and on and on? There are a lot of different things. I would say that in those instances, we are not to be flippant with our theology. We are not to be approached by a broken situation and just say, well, this is black and white. What it says, get out of my office or you're in sin. In other words, in the midst of some of these other things, there might be a larger issue that would apply to two of the things we just spoke about. And so in all of this, I just want you to know that there is grace from God in the midst of divorce. And so if, if you have been in an unbiblical divorce, there is still grace for you. Jesus still loves you. Redemption and reconciliation and restoration are all still possible. And if that is you, please come and talk to us. We would love to help you walk through that. Okay. But see, where there is brokenness in a relationship, where there is pain in a marriage, as Christians, and I'd say this, regardless of issue, including adultery, including desertion, the question should not be, is this grounds for divorce? It should be, is this grounds for redemption? Is this grounds for the sovereign God of the universe who is powerful over all things, who changes hearts and minds, who restores sight to the blind, who rose from the dead, who gives grace upon grace and power and love to all? Is this an opportunity for him to do his thing? Is this an opportunity for there to be restoration, not just that there would be celebration in that one marriage, but celebration across the landscape as people can see the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? That needs to be the question that guides all of this. Is this an opportunity for Jesus to do what Jesus does 
which is redeem all things, including the most broken of marriages, the most broken of relationships, the most broken of hearts to come in and restore and rejuvenate. One of uh, this family, and I wasn't even a Christian back in high school, but this family took an interest in me and a group of my friends. And I remember them sharing their story with us and I remember them telling us, and the name of Gary and Kelly, and they don't mind if I, if I share this, but I remember them telling, and we had no idea, because, I mean, from the outside, uh, perfect marriage. I mean, absolutely perfect marriage. Like, as if, like, they, they just never fought. There was ne- they never committed to sin against each other, ever. They probably never, I mean, they, it was just beautiful. The way they loved, the way they cared, the way they shared with people. And then they began to tell us their story about how about five or six years prior to us getting to know them, how Gary began to spend more time at the office, began to work later hours, began to neglect her emotionally and spiritually, romantically, the whole deal. And then Kelly, in response to that, went and had an affair with multiple men. And then they came back together after everything had come out. And it wasn't like a confession thing. It was a situation where she was caught. And they had a choice to make. And the, the choice was, do we believe in the power of Jesus? Because these were this a Christian couple, grew up in the church, did the church thing, loved God. The question became, are we actually disciples? Do we, do we, actually, do we actually follow Jesus? Do we actually believe what he said? Do we believe the Bible? As we read through this thing, do we believe he's that powerful? Do we believe that he's the one that changes hearts? So listen to me, hear me. If you're sitting here right now and something has aggravated you about your spouse, and listen, just because I know not everyone's married, if something has aggravated you about a best friend, if something has aggravated you about a family member, do you think it's possible for Jesus Christ, the one who has created, made, and sustains all things, to change their heart and change yours? If you follow him, if you're his disciple, the answer must be yes. And so they began to share their story and how bit by bit, piece by piece, they picked up years of brokenness and made it something beautiful, asking the question, do we follow him? Do we believe him? Are we disciples? And is this an opportunity for Jesus Christ to flaunt his power? And he did. And to this day, they still have one of the most magnificent marriages I've ever seen. One of the most unbelievable marriages I've ever seen. The, the things that we all aspire to as married couples. Do they have their problems and sins? So fight, absolutely. But the grace and the reflection of the gospel that comes in that is absolutely tremendous. So it's a discipleship issue for us. It's a discipleship issue for us. What do we believe about God? What do you believe about his power? What do you believe about the work he's already accomplished in your life? Could he do more? Across any relationship, but specifically as we think through marriage. One last little nugget before we wrap this up. As you think through all these other ideas, I know a question that kept raising up in my mind in the midst of this was, man, gosh, like abuse. Let's just talk about abuse. It, to me, right, that that seems, that seems worse than adultery, okay? And, and, I'm, and I think from a physical standpoint, it certainly is. 
And now that I've said it, let me just say we, gosh, this is a rabbit trail like no other, but let me just say this, in the midst of abuse, there, there needs to be separation, okay? And, and there are further conversations, I just want you to hear that, okay? It's, it's not, please don't hear, stick it out, okay? Please don't hear, stay and stick it out, that's not what we're saying, but in the midst of this, I want us to get at God's heart here about why adultery is such a problem, why it becomes kind of the major ground for biblical, grounds for biblical divorce, and it's because of this. I think, one, our culture is so incredibly over-sexualized, sleeping with another person doesn't seem that big a deal. We do it before we're married. What's the difference? We got a certificate now. What's the big deal? We live in such a culture and such a society where sex isn't deemed that big a problem, isn't deemed anything that should not be done out of certain contexts. And so because it's that, I think we minimize the depths and the spiritual realities of why God hates it so much. Just remember that in that moment, in adultery, there is a fracturing of a supernatural reality that God has created. And then what you're doing is joining yourself in a new supernatural reality with someone different. The reason why this is such an incredible deal is because Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 tells us that the entire institution of marriage, husband and wife, why it's such an important thing to the kingdom of God is because it reflects Jesus Christ and his love for his bride, the church. What do we know to be true about the gospel? We know that Jesus went to all lengths, even to death, to rescue this bride. We know that he died, that he conquered death, rose on the third day to secure redemption and reconciliation and restoration to a broken relationship. And so when we adultery, when we go after other idols, it is an abandonment. It is a fractured version and representation to the world of what Christ has done. the big problem with divorce is that it tells the world that our Savior could leave us too. What divorce is a picture of is a picture of our Savior saying, I've had enough. What divorce is 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 a glimpse into a God that would say, you know what? You're too sinful and I can't take it anymore. But that is not reality. The reality is that we serve and follow a Savior who takes it all, who takes everything you can, you can pile up on him. He takes all the rejection. He takes all the sin. He takes all the brokenness. He takes all the malice. He takes all the deceit, all the betrayal, and he says, I still love you. And I'm in this for the long haul. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. So when we as married couples, if that's you here, you have an opportunity as the world watches to reflect the beauty that is Jesus coming for his bride, saving her, redeeming her, restoring her to the image that she should have without blemish, with value, and presenting that mission to the world that others might find themselves in a similar situation. That's why marriage is such a big deal. That's why divorce is such a big deal. And it is a discipleship issue for us today. And so as the takeaway, 
The takeaway today, if you're married, is not don't get divorced, okay? Although, don't, okay? It's follow Jesus, which is super broad. It's resolve continuously every morning, waking up to the mercies of God and realization that in Ephesians 5, then you can just keep breaking this down because he's gonna keep coming and pursuing after you. He died for you. And so there is this burdenless freedom to walk in the midst of our gross, just disgust, I mean, bad hair day, no makeup, just messed up and say, Jesus, I'm here and I love you. I'm gonna try and follow you. I'm gonna fail again, but I'm here. That's what the gospel is. So as you leave, it's not don't get divorced. It's follow Jesus, be a disciple, get into his word, be in community, pray, 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 pray. Read your Bible, pray, talk to get in community, share the gospel, tell your friends about Jesus, live a life that is worthy to the calling with which you've received. Be a disciple of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that marriage will be easy. It doesn't mean that all your relationships will be easy. But it'll probably, probably mean that they'll be successful. That they would continue to image the beauty of the gospel story to the world, which is our calling. Amen? Let's pray.